The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. I've always been fascinated, fascinated by the way smart people can do incredibly stupid things. Right. And, and I love the way that renovates our notion of, of uh, epiphany, which is often, you know, the Joyce's term, uh, as it's been a, a sort of shanghaied by literary critics, it, it's often misunderstood to be sort of like, well, if only we had more information, we would never make these mistakes again. Mm. You know, the, the sort of simple-minded epiphanies, the way they get worked out is sort of like, you know, then Billy understood that his grandmother had never had it so easy, and he would never think of her the same way again. But I'm fascinated by writers like Nabokov or Robert Stone, who are all about presenting you with characters who announce to you right away that they see very much uh, with great clarity what it is they need to do and then they don't do it <laughs> right <laughs> they have all the information they need and uh they continue against all odds to fail to succeed right it's so human it's so human that's author jim shepherd talking about literary epiphanies and the human condition Oh, today's guest is a treat, one of my favorite authors, a true American original. We cover a lot of ground in our discussion, from the humor of Christopher Guest and S.J. Perlman, to the poetic philosophy of Robert Frost, to F.W. Murnau's film Nosferatu. We flutter around whether Vladimir Nabokov would have preferred the pastoral pleasures of baseball or the supernatural speed of hockey. And we sink our teeth into Dracula the original novel, that is, and ask whether its author, Bram Stoker, would have been pleased with the many adaptations that have appeared like bats flying out of a belfry. And finally, we descend into the world of volcanoes, where we explore how an author discovers emotional truths in unexpected places. That's all in our conversation with Jim Shepard, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the show. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm not going to waste your time today with a long introduction. This interview is too good. Jim Shepard is an author I've admired for a long time, ever since I was in Taiwan in the mid-90s, and I ran across his story, Batting Against Castro. It took me back to an America that I very much missed. I don't know, a, a certain style, an American style, an American voice, an American attitude. A particular kind of American outlook. Since then, his stories and novels have never failed to challenge and entertain and enlighten. In this interview, well, I hope you enjoy it half as much as I did. For those of you new to the podcast, we have several author discussions in our back catalog and our feed that you might want to check out. Interviews with Charles Baxter and Margot Livesey, for example. If you like history and literature, maybe our talk with Radha Vatsal. And of course, fan favorites Ronica Dar, and Shauna Yang Ryan, and Vu Tran. We have some good ones coming up too, so you'll definitely want to hit the subscribe button if you haven't already. And if you're here for the Dracula, you will definitely want to revisit our show with Professor Jim Chandler of the University of Chicago, who took us on a thrill ride through Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Here's some news. Nirvana, our listener who emailed on her way to Mongolia checked in and let me know that she's home now. She's doing fine. And the podcast helped keep her company, even out there in Mongolia. Welcome back, Nirvana. So, Uno ads again today. We're still weaning ourselves away from them on principled grounds. The principle here being <laughs> foolhardiness. <laughs> anyway, you're welcome, dear listeners. Enjoy the show unencumbered. We're going commando as my producer says. And for those of you clamoring for more Mike Palindrome, don't worry, he's doing just fine. We'll have another literary draft soon. Okay, here we go. My conversation with Jim Shepard, after this.
Okay, joining me now is Jim Shepard, an American novelist and short story writer who teaches at Williams College. Professor Shepard is the author of several novels and collections of short stories, and he's edited a few books as well, including the underrated You've Got to Read This. His most recent work is The World to Come, a collection of short stories that's already getting rave reviews. It's no exaggeration to say that Jim Shepard is one of the most admired and celebrated writers in American letters. Professor Shepard, welcome to the History of Literature podcast. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Sure. So I asked you to select some books that you have loved, and you've chosen some great ones, which we'll get to soon. But first, I wanted to ask you a few questions about your own writing. And you're famous for your historical research and the way you can convey a rich historical period in the span of a single short story. But I think you also have a claim at being either the funniest literary writer we have or the most literary of all the humorists. And I think we don't talk about that, about tracing the origins of that as much. We do it with stand-up comedians and comedic actors, but it's not something we often talk about with literary fiction. I was wondering if you're able to trace your sense of humor to any fiction writers or poets. That's an interesting question. Um, You know, as a kid, I... I, uh got comedy the way most people did, you know, on television and movies, and I mm-hmm. would watch the stand-up comics on TV, and I would watch the old sketch comics like, you know, Jackie Gleason and, and the Honeymooners and Sid Caesar and stuff like that, and right. I was also a big fan of Monty Python once PBS started throwing that on the air every Sunday night around 1971 or 72, but, you know, I... I um, I did come across um, at a very early age. I'm not exactly sure how. Maybe just a little bored one day in the library or something. But I did come across S. J. Perelman's work and oh. absolutely adored it. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you know, I had known his stuff in the Marx Brothers screenplays, even though um, I hadn't realized he was the screenwriter a lot of the time. But I really loved him even more on the page and mm-hmm. his his sort of manic, parodic uh, mix of high and low culture. Um, was a wonderful tonic for me because it it both, um, you know, for somebody like myself, I was the first person in my family to go to college. So for somebody like like myself, there was that really wonderful mix of somebody who was uh, clearly uh, as much on the outs from high culture as I was on the one hand, but on the other hand, aspired to it enough that he could um, make all of these references. I don't know how much Perelman you've read, but he's he's sort of like um, uh, Donald Barthelmay on on crack or something. Mm. He's just like a really <laughs> amped up version of that kind of mix of high and low, and and I really love that. Um, and I think that a, a lot of the comic energy that I imagined in writing I got from Perelman as opposed to uh, fiction writers. I also came across um, around my college years uh, Howard Nemiroff's poetry, and oh. he has a really he has a really wonderful sort of deadpan delivery that yes. um, I really found super appealing. And I'm not even sure I would have been as ravished by it if I hadn't uh, uh, seen him give a few readings and just loved his kind of you know. Um, Again, this sort of, uh, what are you people laughing at kind of deadpan that was just hilarious, you know? Right. You know, I think I I think I think did okay. I wrote down a few that I thought you might mention, and I didn't have... Oh, I like this. It's like a game. See <laughs> yeah. what Jim will say. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't have... Uh, I'm testing myself. I didn't, have, right. uh, I didn't have Perlman, but I had James Thurber, who's kind of close. Oh, yeah. I did some Thurber, too. But uh, again, I like I like Perlman's manic qualities a little more than Thurber, I think. Yeah. I'm glad you said deadpan. That was the that was the word that I was kind of uh, trying to trying to match up comedians. And I kind of thought, I don't know if Christopher Guest would have been an influence on you, but he seemed like uh, someone that I found to have a similar sensibility in some of the characters. He does have a very similar sensibility. My problem is I was sort of fully formed by the time I ran into yeah. Guest. Because yeah. My first experience of Guest was probably Spinal Tap, uh, which was you know quite farther along in my development. Right. It's interesting. I wonder if maybe the two of you shared some influences in common or just the zeitgeist, the general comedic zeitgeist. It might be the comedic zeitgeist, but it's also, you know, we did come out of the same, um, you know, 60s and 70s mm-hmm. uh, sort of, uh, you know, I, I bet for somebody like the two of us, uh, I don't know if you remember uh, in terms of deadpan, but Pat Paulson on the Smothers yes. Brothers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Present another in our continuing series of editorials. Should the fees doctors charge be regulated by law? And here he is speaking for our program is Mr. Patrick Paulson, Vice President. 
of late, more and more people are expressing the view that doctors are charging too much for their services. Now the complaints of exorbitant fees come without almost exception from those who have been going to doctors. <laughs> I say these people are sick. <laughs> Why listen to them? If you want to get a true picture, there's an old saying, if you have two ties, scales, and gorges, and fredges, you'll not have an inaccuracy parts, but several will be sliding in. In other words, a horse with a broken leg never asked to be shot. Now, if a surgeon socks it to you, remember their long years of training. Eight years in medical school, ten years for the dumber ones. <laughs> and don't forget a surgeon has his expenses too. Secretary, fancy office, and what about the payoff to the guy who really does the operating? <laughs> Put yourself in the place of doctors of today. They have big cars, a mansion with a swimming pool, maids, butlers. Do you think it's easy leaving all of this every morning to work with sick people? <laughs> In conclusion, let's take the case of one patient, a Mr. J.P. Henderson. May he rest in peace. <laughs> no, better yet, take my own case. I was recently in an automobile accident, going off on an on-ramp. <laughs> I was on the operating table 57 minutes, yet the fee was only $1,300. And they didn't charge me a cent for the horn they left in me. <laughs> Naturally, it's a lot of fun at parties. But it sure louses up my love life. Uh, you know, that kind of uh, guy uh, probably right. had a big influence on people like us as well. Right. Well, I, I can think of uh, no better commendation uh, for your writing to people who haven't encountered it yet to say that I think it's, it's what Christopher Guest might write if he wrote fiction. Oh, there you go. I'll take that <laughs> compliment any day. <laughs> do you ever find that when you're writing now the other thing that you do though is you fuse it with this literary sensibility and the the, the general humanity and, and the characters and a lot of the things that we associate with excellent literary fiction I'm wondering <laughs> do you ever find yourself pulling back on a joke because you're worried that it's going to destroy the effect or it's going to yeah certainly um, given that it, if I'm trying to generate literary work, all of this is serving um, uh, an emotional agenda. And, and in the case of comedy and literature, there's uh, you know a sense of the comedy being there in some ways to combat the heartbreak and the pain. And so anytime um, it starts to seem either as though um, the writer is overindulging in the joking or um, the characters are being flattened out and becoming mm. um, cartoonish, um, you know, I, I'm very alert to that or try to be very alert to that and pull back, essentially, yeah. um, because I, I always wanted to, I want the comedy to serve the uh, emotional arc of the work, not to, not for the emotional arc to be like a, a, you know, a superstructure on which I hang a lot of jokes. And so normally the response to my work is more along the lines of, wow, I never thought given this subject that it was going to be this funny, you know, so if it's a novel right. about the Holocaust, you're not expecting laughter at any given moment. If it's a novel about school shooting, you're not expecting laughter at any given moment. But you, you know, I, I like that idea of reminding people that acknowledging absurdity is a way in which we often deal with some of our most painful situations. You know? mm -hmm. And there's, there's a risk there if you're, especially if you're taking on such a charged subject that you'll, you'll almost, the author will come across as, as either kind of bullying or or not sensitive enough to uh, the characters. Yeah, I mean, because you know the, the 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 reader is quite aware that the author is the one who's arranged this character's pain, and so mm -hmm. if the work is having a little too much 
fun with the character's pain, you can feel the cruelty after a while. It feels to me sometimes with some of these uh, writers who get a little too comically manic, like they're pulling the wings off a fly, you know, and, yeah. um, and I always feel a little bad for the characters at that point. Right, right. Okay, so let's take a look at one of the books you selected, um, and we <laughs> the Perlman seems to lead into this when you're describing the the energy and the the, the sort of zeal for life is one of the and the love of language and that that's one of the a few of the characteristics that I really associate with this book. You chose Lolita by Vladimir mm-hmm. Nabokov, and I'm not sure that anyone needs an introduction to this if they're listening to this podcast, but just in case. Uh, or just to remind everyone, this is a 1955 novel about a middle-aged man's obsession with a 12-year-old girl. It was controversial at the beginning, and it's remained so, and it's disturbing, but it's also powerful and compelling. And it's become one of the central works of literature of the 20th century. So, where were you in life when the book came your way? Um, it was pretty late, actually. I think, um, you know, I'd, I'd heard vague things about it over the years, but again, I came from a very... Um, um, essentially uneducated families. Mm. So um, I think I came across it first in college um, and mm. then really studied it for the first time in graduate school. So I came to it fairly late. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't have been on but your it, parents' shelf? No, not even close. Mm. Um, my my parents, um, you know, because neither of them had gone to college, they tended to believe that books were a good idea, but if you were going to read books, you should learn something, which meant that uh, the the huge preponderance of the books in our house were either reference books or nonfiction books. Right, um, right. There was almost no fiction or poetry in our house. And so then um, you encountered it in college. Was your first read of it? Yeah, um, and I remember being um, just flattened by the idea that a, a book could be that performative and that manic and comic and yet be about something so uh, horrifyingly powerful. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think I'd ever read I, uh, I hadn't read up to that point, and I'm not sure I've read since any book that so spectacularly combines playfulness and heartbreak, or um, or that so spectacularly presents you with an extraordinarily charming, unreliable narrator that you don't want to be charmed by, but oh. who keeps winning, who keeps winning you over to his games, you know. Yeah. Um, and as you move farther into the book, you know, I'd always come across this wonderful line of Robert Frost's that poetry is play for mortal stakes. Um, mm. But it was really Lolita that, that showed me why that's true. You know, I mean, I I sort of understood on an intellectual level, oh, yeah, I see. So the poem Robert Frost wrote really means a lot to him. Okay, whatever. <laughs> um, but but when, <laughs> when you're playing this game with Humbert and Nabokov, and, you know, he's setting up all of these little um, traps for you and setting up all of these little connections you can draw and then leading you down these blind alleys and you're both enjoying it and and being slightly horrified by it, you're always being reminded in the book that, that this is a predator who has destroyed the life of a child and is continuing to simultaneously um, try to wiggle out of that in the most entertaining ways possible and fess up to it in the most heartbreaking ways possible. Um, And the idea that you could keep that sort of tightrope balance going throughout a whole novel was just astonishing to me. Um, And it was uh, hugely inspiring for that reason, I think, as as a fiction writer to sort of say, you know, because one of the things I really, I, I, tell myself and I tell my students all the time is in order to keep doing this you really need to keep that notion of play in front of you as a writer you know you really do need to believe that when you're sitting down at the desk you're not simply wrestling with the most difficult emotional um, issues you've ever dealt with because what male wants to sit down and do that right but um, the idea that you'd be sitting down to play is a lot more appealing and the idea that by sitting down to play you're going to get at something very, very difficult and very, very naughty is, is a wonderfully exhilarating and liberating notion. Mm, yeah. It, I mean, the book for me, it's always been so important for me in understanding the experience of reading. You mm-hmm. know, we're, we're so conditioned to root for the narrator anyway and to want, yeah. to want what the narrator wants. And it's disorienting to realize we might it, almost against our will be rooting for something that we find or someone that we find morally distasteful 
Yeah. And it, it really kind of opened me up as a human. It, it caused me to question myself. Why am I going along with this? Or what is it about this that is making me feel uh, like it's I'm, I'm uneasy with the way that I'm reading this? Yeah. And it, it's also kind of wonderful in terms of um, ethical issues on the way in which all confessions are in some ways secret self-exonerations. Mm, um, right. Of course, if it ended up being just an attempt at a self-exoneration, everyone would have found the book repellent. But in fact, it moves past that to a really honest and, and heartbreaking mea culpa at the end. But before that, there's so much that sounds like uh, now I'm going to really fess up and tell you the truth that slithers into something else. And then suddenly you find yourself once again having, you know, he takes advantage of that desire you have to uh, bond with your narrator. Um, and you find yourself over and over again in, in very unpleasant emotional positions, you know? Right, right. Okay, so I have a, uh, a quotation and this is actually a quotation uh, that I found in an interview with you. Um, oh, there you go. This, this is something that you said, and I thought this would be uh, a good time for me to roll this out and, and see what you think. <laughs> All right. Okay, so the quote is, I don't want to seem like the omniscient wise figure that has a take on the characters. What I want to do is create the illusion that there's this voice talking to you, and it's quite persuasive at times and quite limited at other times, and allow you to make your own judgments about the voice. Mm. And I yeah, thought that, sounds that familiar. reminds me of Humbert Humbert. Yeah, <laughs> it really does. And, and Humbert, you know, one of the wonderful things about Humbert is that on the one hand, he's extraordinarily intelligent and extraordinarily erudite and mm -hmm. um, arrogant. And on the other hand, he has, it hardly needs to be said, but he has staggering blind spots. And he also, part of the novel's comedy, and Nabokov is wonderful at comedy, is how, what deficiencies of just basic common sense he has as well. Um, and so I've always been, and I'm sure Lolita had a big effect on me with this as well, I've always been fascinated, fascinated by the way smart people can do incredibly stupid things. Right. Um, and, and I love the way that renovates our notion of, of uh, epiphany, which is often, you know, the Joyce's term, uh, as it's been a sort of shanghaied by literary critics, um, it's often misunderstood to be sort of like, well, if only we had more information, we would never make these mistakes again, you know, and mm -hmm. so, you know, the, the sort of simple-minded epiphanies, the way they get worked out is sort of like, you know, then Billy understood that his grandmother had never had it so easy, and he would never think of her the same way again, you know, right, that kind of right. thing. Yeah. Um, but, but I'm fascinated by writers like Nabokov or Robert Stone, who are all about um, presenting you with characters who announce to you right away that they see very much uh, with great clarity what it is they need to do, and then they don't do it. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, they have all the information they need, and they, um, you yeah. know, uh, they continue um, against all odds to fail to succeed, you know. Right. It's so human. It's so human. Oh. Um, and it's so devastating, right, because we want to believe that if we were just armed with sufficient information, Yep. Um, that would solve that problem. But anybody who's had a family knows that's not the way that works. Right? Um, right. We, we, <laughs> we continually say to our loved ones, Mom, you're doing it again. And, you know, when we realize Mom knows what she's doing. Right. <laughs> okay, so I have a uh, surprise bonus question. Oh, boy. I actually have a couple of them for Lolita. So we'll see. Uh, the One will follow the other. So Okay. Uh, okay, here it is. For Father's Day... Your loved ones offer you an amazing gift. They've discovered a portal into the 1950s where they've befriended Vladimir Nabokov, who is at the height of his powers. He's offered to read some of your work and offer you some feedback. He only has one restriction. He's a busy man and he wants some guidance. What do you give him to read and what aspect of your work would you like him to comment upon? Oh boy, what a great question! I, I this is I like that you have richer fantasies than I do. Um, <laughs> I would give him um, a collection of one of my more recent collections of stories because I think what that would do would give him a range of options in terms of. My guess would be that some of my things would been be 
of no interest to him whatsoever and others would intrigue him and that uh. would allow him he wasn't as far as i can tell very gracious about um pretending if enthusiasms when he didn't feel them so what that would allow him to do would be to say oh i want to talk to you about this story in particular and right. we could focus on that and i could try to ignore the fact that he passed in silence over two or three <laughs> other stories if I gave him one of my novels, I think I fear that if he didn't engage it, we'd have, we, he would just look at me and I'd be devastated, you know, and that'd be the end of that. So I think I would give him one of the story collections and let him choose what he wanted to talk about, essentially. Do you suspect he might be drawn to ones where your narrator, your narration challenges the reader in the ways that we've been talking about with Lolita? Boy, that's a very good question. Um, what, what would be interesting and terrifying is a lot of my stories attempt to channel European narrators from various places that he was quite cognizant of. You know, I have, right. a, I have a number of German narrators. I have a number of Russian narrators. Um, so right. it would be uh, exhilarating and terrifying to see him pass <laughs> his eyes over those stories and either say, you must be kidding, or say, well, that was actually <laughs> fairly well done, you know, or whatever. Right. Okay, here's the part two. Okay. Uh, Nabokov likes I hope your... I'm doing okay in yeah. terms of yeah. points. Yeah. <laughs> You're winning. You're winning the game. There you go. Uh, Nabokov likes your work. He offers well, you. This, a, I'm liking this even yeah. more now. <laughs> he offers you a deal. You can spend a few hours together. Either he will take you butterfly hunting, or you can take him to a ball game. Your choice. Which oh, one wanna, do you go uh, for? I want to take him to a ball game because even though I would <laughs> learn a lot more about butterflies than he would learn about baseball, it would be just hilarious to see him uh, at one of those uh, sorts of situations. I, in fact, I had an experience like that. That's one of my happier literary experiences. Years and years ago, um, I was teaching in the Warren Wilson program, which is a low-residency res, uh, low MFA program in North Carolina, and Ann Carson, the poet Ann Carson, was teaching there for the first time. And um, we hit it off, and she said to me one day, sort of shyly, out of nowhere, uh, "Are you interested in going to uh, one of those little, um, like, you know, they they have those races, those racer cars that are like tiny little cars? I don't even know what they call them." Um, and I said no, and she said, "Oh," and she seemed crestfallen. She goes, "I'd like to go," and I suddenly realized, "What am I saying? I have a chance to go to see this thing with Ann Carson." So I said, no, no, yeah, let's go. And so we went and it was, I was, you know, I'm sitting there with this woman who has this extraordinary <laughs> intelligence. Right. Um, and we're watching this lunatic aspect of America. Um, and it was just, it was just priceless. Uh, so the idea of, you know, sitting there while, um, Mabakov has to suffer through, you know, 17 foul balls in a row or something yeah. is, I would jump at that. It would have to be baseball, right? I was thinking, I don't think I could take him to a basketball game or a football game. No, I think basketball and football wouldn't quite be right. He might, yeah. you know, he might like some of the, uh, the, the, the sort of supernatural speed of hockey. He might go mm, for that. Yeah. Um, hockey or baseball, <laughs> but I, I think football would be too brutal and brutish and basketball would seem to him uh, too chaotic, I think. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. He'd probably like all the little rituals and all the, the different names of things in the baseball. Well, and of I mean, course, he'd love the pastoral quality of it, right? Yeah, the, the, yep. it, there'd be a lot of uh, just um, outdoor beauty that he could, uh, unless he went to, you know, Miami Stadium or something like that, <laughs> and then he'd be horrified. <laughs> right. Okay, so let's turn to uh, the next work you chose. Okay. Uh, Dracula. By Bram Stoker. Oh yeah. So I need to thank you for calling this to my attention. I think it's <laughs> it's been on my shelf for about twenty years, and I am so I, glad to I have had not read it. And I I sort of am putting it in the category with Robinson Crusoe and Frankenstein and Sherlock Holmes, and it's just easy to think we already know what the story is and that we know that the popularity is because the author came up with this one great idea. And I know, then, and, and, and the movies in that case have done the book so uh, much damage in that right. regard. And you, um, and, I spent years thinking that the, the novel was essentially the Bela Lugosi movie. Right, right. And then you go to the book and you think, no, this, this was popular because it was a great idea and it was a great read, and that's, that's what launched all of this. Absolutely. So how old were you when you first encountered the real Dracula? Well, this was actually one of the turning points in my life as a reader. Um, mm. I was about, 
oh, I don't know, maybe fourth or fifth grade, and I received a Christmas gift certificate to one of the dullest downtown department stores in Bridgeport, <laughs> one of those stores that doesn't even have a toy department. Oh. And I thought, yeah, I was only fourth grade or so, and I thought, oh, my God, I'm not, I'm going to have to buy some, socks or some something. pillowcases or... Uh, yeah, yeah, and so I went pants. there sort of glumly, and I'm walking up and down the aisles, and then it occurred to me that they did have a book section. It wasn't very big, but they had one. And I went there, and... I thought, well, the heck with it. I'll just, and so I stat, I, I loaded up on anything that had a monster in it. Um, <laughs> so I got, you know, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and yep. I got Stoker's Dracula and I got Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And, right. you know, I came home and, and, um, something that would never happen to my children now happened to me routinely and probably happened to you too, which is, you know, it was raining. I couldn't find any of my friends. Uh, there's nothing on the two channels on television that were working. So I thought, well, I might as well read this stupid book. And I, I started Frankenstein and it was, the, the language was so formal and, um, yeah. so, um, difficult to negotiate for my fourth grade mind that I immediately stopped and I was totally and discouraged. And I thought, oh, maybe. Sorry, Frankenstein also starts with that long passage where they're on the ice flows. Yeah, and, it just and I'm takes like, what the heck, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so I was totally discouraged. And then I was, you know, still rainy. I still had nothing to do. And I thought, you know, one last stab. I thought, well, let me give Dracula a shot anyway. And I had no expectations for it because by that point, of course, I'd seen all of the Universal monster movies. And I thought, you know, Bela Lugosi's Dracula was kind of goofy. And not very frightening and not very interesting. And I started reading the the novel and I was just swept away. Um, I got very, very quickly into, you know, Harker going, seeing all these incredibly cool things happening that are all yeah. very sinister and all very um, evocative. And by the time he gets to the castle, yeah, I, I remember thinking, even as a fourth grader, I remember thinking, how on earth did they leave this out of the movie? Were they out of their minds? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then there's that amazing moment when, um, I think T.S. Eliot even refers to it in The Wasteland, where um, he's looking out, Harker's looking out the window, and he sees, you know, he's looking down this gigantic abyss, Yeah. and he sees Dracula at the window below him, and then he sees Dracula come out the window and start going, walking downward like a lizard. Yeah down the side of the wall uh, and his cape is like, you know, floating out like gray wings. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I, I had never experienced, I was fourth grade. I had never experienced a book that put images in my head that I would see all night, essentially. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that was, that was revelatory to me. And, and then there was other stuff too, like the, um, you know, the idea that a book could be that titillating. There's that amazing yes. scene um, where Harker is, wanders into the wrong room and the three brides come and they're and he pretends that he's in a swoon and he uh, says oh my god i wanted nothing more than them them to touch me with their red lips and i was yeah. like you know, i was in fourth grade and i think that pretty quickly accelerated uh, my sexual development right there I think. you know yeah. that it's funny because about a month ago i was uh trying to i was thinking about putting together a show about you know there's always this bad sex writing every year and there's a bad sex award and so i've been wanting yeah, to yeah. do a, a podcast about good sex awards you know like good writing about sex and so right. i was looking at a an anthology of literary uh erotica i guess it was and um or maybe it was just literary sex scenes or something and they had bram stoker's dracula in there so i read it and it was that passage, and I thought, yeah, yeah that is, passage is amazing. It's really, uh, it's a uh, great passage. Yeah, it's and then really you think exciting. that this is a nineteenth-century. I mean, you think yeah. about who wrote this. I mean, it, it was really exciting, and it, it, I was astonished. In the moonlight opposite me, were three young women, ladies by their dress and manner. I thought at the time that I must be dreaming when I saw them, for though the moonlight was behind them, they threw no shadow on the floor. They came close to me and looked at me for some time, and then whispered together. Two were dark and had high aquiline noses, like the Count, and great dark piercing eyes that seemed to be almost red when contrasted with the pale yellow moon. The other was fair, as fair as can be, with great masses of golden hair and eyes like pale sapphires. I seemed somehow to know her face and to know it in connection with some dreamy fear, but I could not recollect at the moment how or where. 
All three had brilliant white teeth that shone like pearls against the ruby of their voluptuous lips. There was something about them that made me uneasy, some longing and at the same time some deadly fear. I felt in my heart a wicked, burning desire that they would kiss me with those red lips. It is not good to note this down, lest some day it should meet Mina's eyes and cause her pain, but it is the truth. They whispered together, and then they all three laughed, such a silvery, musical laugh, but as hard as though the sound never could have come through the softness of human lips. It was like the intolerable, tingling sweetness of water-glasses when played on by a cunning hand. The fair girl shook her head coquettishly, and the other two urged her on. One said, "'Go on. You are first, and we shall follow. Yours is the right to begin.' And the other added, "'He is young and strong. There are kisses for us all.' I lay quiet, looking out from under my eyelashes in an agony of delightful anticipation. The fair girl advanced and bent over me, till I could feel the movement of her breath upon me. Sweet it was in one sense, honey-sweet, and sent the same tingling through the nerves as her voice, but with a bitter underlying the sweet, a bitter offensiveness as one smells in blood. I was afraid to raise my eyelids, but looked out and saw perfectly under the lashes. The fair girl went on her knees and bent over me, fairly gloating. There was a deliberate voluptuousness which was both thrilling and repulsive, and as she arched her neck, she actually licked her lips like an animal till I could see in the moonlight the moisture shining on the scarlet lips and on the red tongue as it lapped the white, sharp teeth. Lower and lower went her head as the lips went below the range of my mouth and chin and seemed about to fasten on my throat. Then she paused, and I could hear the churning sound of her tongue as it licked her teeth and lips, and I could feel the hot breath on my neck. Then the skin of my throat began to tingle, as one's flesh does when the hand that is to tickle it approaches nearer, nearer. I could feel the soft, shivering touch of the lips on the super-sensitive skin of my throat, and the hard dents of two sharp teeth just touching and pausing there. I closed my eyes in a languorous ecstasy and waited, waited with a beating heart. It's easy to see why the book was widely read so quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and what was great was that it was, again, that there were all of these sorts of thrills being imported under one cover, right? I yeah. mean, you had this you had this erotic thrill, you had this supernatural thrill, you had this thriller of a book, you had this adventure story, you had, I mean, it was a... And he was smart enough to, even though it was an epistolary form, he really kept things moving. And in fact, it was really instructive for me to read that alongside Frankenstein, because as brilliant as Frankenstein is in many ways, I wouldn't describe it as Mary Shelley keeping things moving by any means. Right, um, right. But Dracula is really headlong in a, in a kind of a wonderful way. Uh, yeah. Now, there are digressions, and there are some things that don't, don't hold up as well as others. You know, Van Helsing, after a while, starts to get uh, pretty tiresome with his accent. And, but even Van Helsing, as he goes off in his digressions, <laughs> comes up with this just off-the-wall wonderful stuff, like, you know, the the giant spider that comes down out of the attic and drinks all of big enough to drink all of the oil and all of the lamps in Madrid or something. <laughs> like, where, where are you getting these stories? It's just amazing. Right. Now, do you, uh, you obviously are a big fan of this as a reader. I could really trace where I thought you went back to Lolita as a writer, but I'm wondering, do you dip into Dracula? Um, is it to energize your your sense of play, as you were talking about earlier? Is there anything that you would go to the book for as a writer? No, I think I'm I think I'm grateful to Dracula for showing me what books could do at such an early age. Mm -hmm. um, but I but and I've reread it periodically, and I've I've read it to my kids too, um, and I know I, I maybe influenced it. By it, by it in all sorts of good ways that I'm not entirely alert to, but uh, it doesn't feel to me a book like Lolita that I went to as a as an adult functioning writer and learned things from in that regard. I mean, right. I think it's pleasures and it's um, techniques that you can learn from. You pick up very very fast. You know, they're they're the kinds of things we were just talking about. You know, don't ever stop keeping the narrative propulsively moving, you know, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And and that's something you can learn in fourth grade, you know. Right, um, right. 
And in fact, when I, it's interesting, you know, when, uh, I was hugely influenced also by the film Nosferatu, which is again, very, very different from the novel in many, many ways. Although the, the openings are sort of similar with Harker and going to visit the vampire, it feels in its weird austerity very different than Stoker. And when I was writing Nosferatu, uh, for that reason, I, I very much didn't use Dracula as a, as, a, as a resource because Nosferatu feels like such a different sensibility. In some right, way. right. Okay, are you ready for the surprise bonus question? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Okay, on a spring break trip to Transylvania, I guess you may be you may be one of the one of the few people on that flight. You find yeah. you find lodging in an old castle that has been converted into a hotel. You open your closet to hang up some things and are shocked to find Bram Stoker hanging upside down. He, he writes himself, mutters something about learning the secrets of eternal life, and eventually invites himself to join you for dinner. You discuss the impact of his novel Dracula on the world. Yes, yes, he says, it's made me a rich man. In fact, maybe too rich. But all these adaptations have a downside. Not enough people actually read my work. I tell you what, I'll give you half my wealth if you can guess what I find most annoying about the 21st century view of Dracula. And, and uh, am I supposed to guess what he finds most annoying? Yes. Oh, let's see, that that the sexual magnetism of the vampire has become so much um, a given, so much of an ordinary mm, thing, right. so much of a... Um, That's the cliche now. Yeah, um, I think one of the things that was most um, brave about that book was um, how much it, you know, and we were talking about that, the eroticism of the theme of the women, how much... The book, um, even though it has, a, it sort of makes all of the right gestures towards piousness. How much it embodies uh, the attractiveness of the repulsive, or the attractiveness of uh, the, the really awful in some ways. And um, the book is very explicit about that. Um, you know, right. Mina says, oh, "Oh my God, you know, I, 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 I couldn't take my eyes away." And, and yeah. Jonathan says that about the women and. Um, that that was very brave, and I think for for Stoker, I think you know he was in the theater, so he was used to transgressive stuff. But I, I think he, I think he would be a little disappointed by how humdrum that's become. Oh yeah, she's evil, and we want to have sex with her, you know, or whatever. You know, right. like that that idea that you know this is the worst possible thing for you, but it's absolutely irresistible. Yeah, uh, he he did very explicitly. I'm thinking now about the movie. I don't know if you saw it. It's uh, an older movie now, 1979, Love at First Bite with uh, George Hamilton. Yeah. 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 That, that's kind of, that trope is, it's it's become almost comic by then. Yeah. I mean, when you can be parodied with George Hamilton, it's gone a little too far. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, one of the things that arrested me about Nosferatu that I thought was kind of wonderful and... One of the things I always thought was ridiculous about the Bela Lugosi thing, you know, Bela Lugosi became like a sex symbol, essentially. Yeah, right. Um, and one of the things that was kind of uh, wonderful about Nosferatu was the way Murnau um, didn't bother to even remotely try to make the vampire um, physically appealing. In fact, he made it as unappealing as he possibly could. It was sort of like a combination of a bat and a rat and a skull. Right. Um, and... Nevertheless, he kept that notion of sexual magnetism in, and so he sort of restored uh, some of that subversive energy. Where you're like, "Wait a minute, why is this? Why are? Why can women not resist this?" You know? Yeah, yeah. Because if you have a, a physically super attractive, you know, the Hammer, uh, the 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 British series that did the dra that did a series of Draculas did a really ridiculous. Uh, you know, the, I mean, they took it, they had Christopher Lee dressed up as an aristocrat, and he's, a, you know, the striking, handsome man, and you're mm. like, well, of course women are attracted to him. He's the, right. he's the best-looking guy in the movie, you know? Okay, so let's move to your third book. All uh, right. Krakatoa, 1883, yep. by Tom Simkin and Richard Fisk. 
And I like to provide at least one book that uh, Jack can't even find. Really. <laughs> well, you know, I'm gonna. Here's here's what my notes were. I tried to get this, but it's not easy to find. <laughs> <laughs> it uh, it wasn't in my library, and it's. I think you can buy it in a uh, a used copy, but it's looks like it's been out of print for a while. Uh, it has, yeah. But, uh, that's the, you should think of a lot of books in Jim's library being in that category. <laughs> I think you can buy it in a used copy, but it looks like it's been out of print for a while. <laughs> now, from what I could tell, it looks like almost like a coffee table book, but a, a treasure trove of charts and information and and all of it to tell the story of this legendary volcanic eruption. Yeah, it's a co- it's coffee table size, but it's nothing like a coffee table book on the inside. Mm. It's far nerdier than that. And mm-hmm. essentially what it is, that's sort of um, one of the reasons I chose it is it's sort of a compendium of uh, primary sources. Yeah, um, yeah. And that's become so crucial to my writing. And Krakatoa, uh, the story, uh, which was in... Um, one of my first collections was one of the first stories that uh, immersed itself in in primary sources that way, and that for me was very very exciting as a way of um, again getting back to that notion of play, right? Because this was one of the first times uh, that story was one of the first times I wrote about um, uh, my brother's institutionalization, which was the mm. great trauma of my uh, autobiographical. Um, you know, sort of family structure. And um, it was a very hard thing to come to write about because it was the one thing that my parents wanted me to stay away from, essentially. Mm. And um, <laughs> I ended up coming at it completely obliquely, um, which was, I, I, you know, I would not have been able to say to myself, well, I might as well sit down and write about my brother now. But I, I did say, Oh my God, I'm so interested in volcanoes, uh, and I really want to know more about volcanoes. And right. so I found myself pouring over this book that I had dragged out of a used bookstore and um, started to think, well, maybe you'll do a historical novel about, or a historical uh, story about uh, somebody at the actual eruption. And then I thought, no, that seems a little too cheesy, and that's not really what my emotional relationship to this stuff is. And v- eventually I sort of taught myself, no, you're really. You're really um, interested in using this to examine how um, you get at emotional stuff obliquely in the first place. And so mm-hmm. then the shape of the story began to take place. And um, it was a really um, salutary, salutary um, example for me of the ways in which by immersing myself in something that would make someone else run screaming from the room out of boredom, I could get at something emotionally important to myself. Right. Oh, that's so interesting. So yeah, it's, I try to be interesting. Yeah. So it's not just the um, it's not just the facts of the or the interest in the scientist who recreated and and discovered a lot of uh, or compiled all of the information. It's not the eyewitness accounts of the people who were there, but it's really your own experience of deep immersion in a subject and kind of coming out the other side or, or seeing what that does to you in unlocking certain doors within yourself. Yeah, and it turns out that it's some of those, you know, some of those accounts, whether it's, you know, some guy's account of what it was like to see the wave coming or what it was like to see the devastation afterwards that allow me to access some of the emotions. Um, right. So it's it's not simply a matter of going, oh, volcanoes, well, I think I know the way the metaphor works. It's a matter of, um, sort of immersion in those in those uh, first person primary documents allow me to get to a place emotionally that um, uh, sort of accesses this other stuff, and so that that was really uh, revelatory for me because nobody had said to me, "Well, you might try that as a method," um, and it, it was also seductive because, as I said before, it's easy for me to sit down and say, "Well, today I'm reading about volcanoes." Um, mm-hmm. And as opposed to, well, I guess you're going to deal with one of the most difficult things in your family's history, you know. Um, and and it's it's just a uh, it was a, a wonderful revelation to discover that by doing one, I could get around to the other. Now, does it? Uh, it sounds like you've done this with other subjects as well. Certainly, your fiction would suggest that you've immersed yeah. yourself in in many different topics. And is it something that you're? aware of early on or is it you know weeks and and months into the reading that you start to see the where it's going to take you 
It's much more the latter. And what will mm. happen is um, my method becomes not so much um, identifying what the next story will be as much as immersing, immersing myself in a way that feels somewhat luxurious and somewhat scattershot in just subjects that interest me. Mm-hmm. And what will happen is sometimes I'll read a, a general history of something uh, and that'll be enough for me. And sometimes I'll read it general history or a general account of the science of something and I'll think, well, I want to hear some primary sources on that and then sometimes I'll, that'll be enough and, or other times I'll say, you know, given that, I want to hear more primary sources and then and at some point, usually a few weeks, if not a, a month or two into the process, I'll start to think, you know, you might want to write about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, my reading changes in some ways because then as a writer I start to think, well, these are the kinds of things you will need to find out or you know find out more about or find out if it's workable in terms of the kind of writing you do or whatever. And then now suddenly at that point I'm I'm taking out a whole different kind of reference book or a whole different kind of uh, you know. Um, Nonfiction work or whatever, um, right. but but it, it's almost always the case with me that um, the reading, just as a, a person who wants to immerse himself in something interesting, precedes by a fair amount the the notion that I'm going to be writing about it. And you've you, some of the subjects have been the Holocaust and the Hindenburg and submarines and ballooning exactly. and the creature from the Black Lagoon and Chernobyl and it, it is there any have you ever found a pattern to it or is there anything in particular that draws you to those or are you I mean well, the all one pattern of... is um, one pattern is certainly I'm drawn to catastrophe as a subject yes, another right. pattern is I'm drawn to failure um, mm. and I'm drawn to that gap between and I think in some ways all literature is but I'm drawn to that gap between um, what we aspire for in ourselves and what we so often manage to achieve and the distance between those two and you know, the, I, I'm one of the reasons I'm interested in catastrophe is that often, as a subject, uh, throws into either greater, even greater relief and 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 creates even greater stakes for that gap, right? The difference between who we most hope to be and who we so often turn out to be right. can be, you know, in, in the smallest possible stakes, can be, you know, reflected in a remark you make to your loved one, but it also could be the matter of life and death for 300 people, you know, so um, right. I'm interested in, in messing around with that scale and, 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 can, and showing how the personal runs into the political in ways that can be absolutely devastating and, and how the political runs into the personal in the same way. Do you ever uh, find a, is there a moment of recognition where you are reading an account and and you realize that the person, either the the eyewitness or the person who's appearing in the account is going to be the narrator or the person in your story and he's sort of raising his hand and saying, yep, here I am. Yeah, there's often a moment where, I mean, a lot of my narrators are composite narrators, but when they are um, based on a, a single real person, yeah, there's usually a moment when they raise their hand by saying something that so resonates with my understanding of the way I operate that uh, if you imagine a, a Venn diagram, it's as though, you know, in the case of uh, F.W. Murnau, who wrote, who made Nosferatu, you know, the sphere of Murnau is, is almost entirely separate from the sphere of Jim Shepard, but there's this little overlap of uh, crucial emotional concerns and conflicts that that I I spotted when I was um, reading some of his stuff, and I thought, oh my God, I I feel like I know this guy, and that suddenly seemed so exciting when I was thinking, why why am I so obsessed with this movie? You know, right. um, again, it's not to say you understand everything about the, these characters by any means, and and these characters turn out to be, at least in my case, you know, a combination of what I know about these people, what I intuit about these people, and what I project onto these people, but. But even so, um, there's this there's this recognition of something that happens when I'm coming across when I'm coming across uh, their voice or their sensibility in some of these sources that that there is, it is as you said it's a good way of putting it it's as though they've raised their hand and said hey I think you know me you know and mm-hmm. I'm like and that's a a lovely and exciting moment when that happens it's often 
you know, in, in a lot of cases, it, it, those can be composite figures too, right? I right. mean, the the title story of my um, most recent collection, a story, a story called The World to Come, is about a very, very lonely young woman who's on the um, American frontier, which was then Western New York, and her one friend who she's obsessively intimate with moves away, and she's left with her husband, who's not particularly terrible, but not particularly close to her either, and the devastating loneliness of that. And that began with two or three different uh, farmers' wives' journals, and and some of the moments that I came across in them that was that were quite moving to me and also familiar. And um, I didn't have any problem with uh, you know synthesizing them and conflating them into one woman. You know? Right. Okay. I have the final surprise bonus question. Oh boy. But now I think I think uh, I think I know what the answer is going to be after we've had this discussion. <laughs> well, you've been a step ahead of me the whole way. So. Okay, on a trip to Rome, you find yourself visiting some ruins that your guidebook tells you was once uh, they were once a temple to Vulcan, the god of fire. It's dusty, and you sneeze several times, twisting your body violently in the process. As it turns out, your contortions have inadvertently conjured up the temple's spiritual patron. As you stammer out your astonishment, Vulcan tells you about a volcanic eruption that no one today remembers. It took place in another era, centuries ago, but it was more mighty and majestic even than Krakatoa. With all due humility, he thinks it's some of his finest work, and it's a shame that it never made it into the history books. He offers you two choices. The first is... You can travel through time and space and witness the eruption yourself. The second option is you can go and interview the 100 people who saw it happen, but whose eyewitness accounts have all been lost to the sands of time. Which one do you choose? Oh, I think I'm too selfish. I'd have to do witnessing it myself. <laughs> I have, um, I have, um, it, it would help my writing a lot to do the latter, um, and I would get a wonderful story or novel out of it, but yeah. I'm way too much of a 10-year-old boy to pass up that opportunity. Okay, great. Well, that that uh, that surprises me. I thought you were going to take the eyewitnesses. Yeah, I think I think a wiser man would have chosen the latter, but I, I, if you're going to let me see it, I'm definitely going to want to see it. Now, do you think that it is possible that you would get a short story or or a, a piece of writing out of examining your own experience that directly? Or? Possibly. Yeah, yeah. But I think the reason you were so sure of the uh, answer is that I definitely would get one out of those hundred people. Right. That would be a, an <laughs> unbelievable treasure trove. And and again, in any other situation, I would say yes, but you don't get a chance to see something like that. I mean, how many people have seen something like that in their yeah. lifetime, right? Uh, right? So I think I would... I think I would have to seize that moment. Um, so your agent is saying, talk to the 100 people, Jim, and you oh, are absolutely. saying... Oh, uh, absolutely. But my agent has been in despair <laughs> about me forever, so <laughs> he knows. My agent knows I always make the wrong decision. <laughs> the agent would just sadly uh, nod his head and say, I know you're going to go see the volcano. Yeah, have my, the agent would have had exactly the other reaction. He goes, oh, I know which one Jim's going to take, the one that makes me less money. <laughs> Okay, well, I think that's a good place to end. Uh, Jim Shepard, yes, thank you. Yes, whenever we're talking about Jim, yeah. ending with a place with less money, I think is a good place to end. <laughs> thank, well, and, and I'm I'm sad to say that this is, uh, you're going to receive my gratitude for this appearance, and that's going to be about it. So, <laughs> <laughs> Although, maybe you'll sell some books. Uh, who I hope who I, can uh, say? I, Where I, stranger I, things have happened. <laughs> I hope I have gotten uh, comments from uh, people who have said they're they're running out to buy all of the author's works after an interview. So um, there you I, go. I think uh, hopefully my listeners will come through and pick up a few of uh, Jim Shepard's books as well. I hope so. <laughs> and thank you so much for joining me today on the history of literature. Well, thanks for having me. <laughs> Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Wasn't that great? So funny, so modest, and so, so smart. Jim Shepard. You should all run out and buy one of his books. They are highly, highly recommended. Did you hear that part where I said that maybe appearing on the podcast might help sell some of his books? And he said, stranger things have happened. <laughs> 
That's so perfect. Stranger things have happened. I'm a little insulted on your behalf as well as my own. Dear listeners, FYI, this thing has real listeners out there who buy books. That's not so strange. Man, I'm struggling for respect here. Maybe I should do my Rodney Dangerfield impression. Should I? Not very good. It's not as good as my Orson Welles. Rodney Dangerfield. Well, okay. I'll give it a try. See? I need to work on that. All my impressions end up sounding like Orson Welles. It's because we're both from Wisconsin. You should hear my Harry Houdini. You would think Citizen Kane was right in the room with you. Except tied up in chains and trapped in a box. Like so many of us are these days. But that's enough about politics. Oh, here we go. Off the rails yet again. My thanks to Jim Shepard. And of course I was kidding. I'm not at all insulted by his comment. I was delighted by the entire conversation. Every minute of it. As I hope he was. And as I hope you were as well, dear listeners. Please do check out his books. They're very good. And let me know what you think at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. That's J-A-C-K-E, wilsonauthor at gmail.com. And as always, thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>